This is an ABC podcast. This is the Country Hour with Cassie Half. On the afternoon of the 28th of September 2016, storms were starting to brew in South Australia. And it's 11 minutes past 12 here on the Country Hour. Now, after a pretty sunny start to the day, it does seem that this wild weather is starting to arrive in Adelaide. It is a bit rainy out there at the moment. A bit rainy turned into a spectacular storm. Pretty uh, nasty weather period coming out for South Australia this afternoon, this evening and tomorrow. The storms brought lightning, heavy winds and two tornadoes. The tornadoes damaged three significant high-voltage power lines, triggering breaker switches across the state. The entire state of South Australia has gone to black. It's gone off the grid. Five months earlier, South Australia had shut down its last coal-fired power station. When those power lines went down, 80% of the state's electricity was provided by wind and solar energy, with two gas-fired power stations providing the rest. Immediately, blame for the blackout was placed on the switch to renewable energy. 40% of South Australia's power is wind-generated, and that has a problem of being intermittent. And what we understand at the moment is that those turbines aren't turning because the wind is blowing too fast. We would have relied too much on wind rather than baseload renewables. All of that turned out to be wrong, but a narrative had been set. South Australia had done this to itself by switching off their coal-fired power. The electricity system has been made less reliable and more expensive by misguided, ill-considered Labor Party policies to push wind and solar into the market without putting in the backup to support it. Days later, the Australian chief scientist Alan Finkel was at the opening of a new science block at a school when Federal Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg pulled him aside. And when he saw me, he said, Alan, I have to speak to you later. It was like something clicked in his head. Late that night, Alan Finkel's phone rang. And about 10.30, quarter to 11 that night, he gave me a call and uh, raised for discussion. The blackout asked me if I knew about it, and I said yes. I'd actually been giving some advice to some others about it. Josh Frydenberg said he and the Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, had decided to commission a review of the electricity market. And they felt that it would be great if I could be the chairman. And I started to say yes, but, you know, as in yes, but that's really difficult. And poor Josh, he was really tired. And without being rude, he said, and Alan, I'm so tired. I've, I've got to hang up. And he hung up on me. <laughs> The next morning, Frydenberg called Finkel again to say that state government energy ministers had agreed that he should be the chairman. Once again, I started to try to ask questions. He said, and now I have to get back into the meeting. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, that was the end of that phone call. So then I called Gordon Dubrow, who I knew, the Secretary of the Department of Environment and Energy at the time. And this is about an hour later. And I said, Gordon, do you know about this? He said, yes, of course. I was in the meeting. And I said, Help! And he was wonderful. He said, Alan, get over here and we'll work on it. And I did, and that was the start of the review. That review would come to be known as the Finkel Review, and it would change every part of Australia's energy grid. I'm Matt Bevan, and this is Australia If You're Listening, a podcast about why Australia's found it so hard to tackle climate change and what that means for the future. Whenever something goes wrong on the power grid, a certain group of people jump at the chance to blame renewable energy. 
But lately, whenever something catastrophic has happened to our energy supply, it's been older technology at fault. Without national leadership on climate policy, the energy grid became a bit of a mess. The best way to describe it all actually was chaotic. The electricity system as it was designed, wasn't really ready to cope with it. In this episode, the story of a series of disasters that show how the system we've always relied on to deliver electricity is faltering. And a question. What can be done about it? Imagine yourself floating down a river in a canoe. The river you're on is the Morwell River in Victoria's Gippsland region. You're heading vaguely northwards out of the Streslecki Ranges and into farmland. After winding past a few small towns, you notice a channel heading off to the right. Follow it and you arrive in what looks like a small lake. But it's not a lake. No, it's not a lake at Hazelwood. It's basically a pondage that took the warm water from Hazelwood and cooled it down. Yeah, not a lake. It's a cooling pond for Hazelwood coal-fired power station. The clue for that is that it's warm, 22 degrees all year round. I remember as a child we used to go and swim in that pondage late at night because it was, regardless of if it was winter or summer, it was always warm. This is Wendy Farmer. President of Voices of the Valley and Renewable Energy Advocate for Friends of the Earth. She grew up near the pond. Pond is a strange word for it, though. It's big enough to have its own yacht club. You know, it had its own caravan park. It actually also had a lot of fish in it. And, you know, there was fishing competitions out there and there were all sorts of things. Unfortunately, those days are now gone. The Not-A-Lake Lake is more like a giant mudflat these days. No yachting, no fishing. You can't swim in it anymore because it is gone. It's gone, is it? Yeah, so the Hazelwood um, pondage was decommissioned at the, about just after the um, Hazelwood. But for a good half a century, it was a big part of the town. Fast conveyor belts carry a river of brown coal to the State Electricity Commission's power station at Hazelwood in Victoria. Hazelwood was the first of a new generation of generators, giant ones built to decrease the number of power stations in cities and towns across the country from a couple of hundred to a couple of dozen. The boiler is about as big as a city office building. It will feed six generators. This one, the main one, is capable of lighting a ring of street lamps around the world. When it was completed, it doubled Victoria's power supply. The way coal-fired power works is pretty simple. Coal-fired power plants are basically like a, a giant Kettle. This is Alison Reeve, formerly an energy advisor for the federal government and now an energy expert at the Grattan Institute. You have a very large kettle, boiler. You're heating up a very large amount of water and you create steam and then you shoot that steam at high pressure at a turbine which spins. But in the Latrobe Valley, boiling a kettle is a little bit trickier because the valley is full of what's called brown coal. You need to burn more of it because a lot of what is in brown coal is actually water. So you're kind of having to evaporate off all that water before you actually get to the the bit that you can burn to create energy, whereas black coal doesn't have that sort of high water content. So you have to burn more of it to make electricity than you do black coal, meaning it creates more emissions. 
Brown coal also occasionally just catches fire on its own. And because it's so heavy and combustible, the Latrobe Valley doesn't export any of its coal. It burns it all there. Hazelwood was only the first of the Latrobe Valley's giant power stations. By the late 1980s, the region was home to three of them, all burning brown coal and blanketing the valley in a persistent smog. Hazelwood, the oldest, was the most polluting power station in the developed world. And it wasn't just Victoria. Giant coal-fired power stations were being used around the country. Electricity generation and the smog that created had been successfully moved out of cities. Now it was the coal region's problem. The design was you had big generators, coal generators. This is former Australian chief scientist Alan Finkel. Big generators driving huge transformers that connected to long-distance transmission lines to take the electricity from where it was convenient to generate it, such as in the Latrobe Valley or in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, to the population centres and the industrial centres. The work brought the people in these communities a lot of pride. Melbourne wouldn't be what it is today without the Latrobe Valley. The whole of Victoria wouldn't be what it is today without the Latrobe Valley. We've been creating power for, you know, nearly 100 years. By the 1990s, the system had become increasingly inefficient. Uh, There were a lot of strikes, certainly in Victoria. You get designated blackouts coming up because there was a strike and there were other inefficiencies in the system. And so the owners, state governments in New South Wales and Victoria, decided to sell. State governments decided that they had this fantastic asset that could be sold to bring in capital and by selling it uh, to private operators it would likely be operated more efficiently. The sale though was, well... Uh, So I think there was about 17,000 people employed at the time of privatisation and it dropped to about 7,000 people. The workers laid off were given a payout to tide them over until they got another job. Apart from that never happened. So a lot of these guys that actually took packages at the time really didn't know how to handle money because they always had the money they needed. They brought um, four-wheel drives, boats, caravans. It was devastating for the local communities, particularly the town of Morwell. We started to see poverty. We started to see lots of people not working, people losing hope for what the future might give, to their families especially. Federal MP Darren Chester was a local journalist at the time. Morwell itself has never really recovered from the shock of the privatisation and uh, the job losses which occurred and and the disruption that occurred in that communities. And as this was happening, the role of these massive power stations was changing. It became apparent um, to the states that if they were more closely linked, they wouldn't need so much power because they could Uh, share their resources. This is Kerry Schott, who until recently was the chair of the Energy Security Board in charge of maintaining solid electricity supply across the country. States realised if they all shared their power, they wouldn't need to make as much of it. All they needed to do was put in more interstate transmission links. Links were built between Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia and Tasmania to create a giant grid. But building wires was the easy bit. This East Coast grid meant you now had dozens of electricity companies battling against each other for who got to chip in the most megawatts. Figuring out how to deal with that was the hard part. The market, wholesale market, was set up so that every 30 minutes uh, a generator can make a bid 
to the operator to sell their power. The operator is the Australian Energy Market Operator, AEMO. It's kind of like eBay for electricity. It figures out how much electricity is needed and then it buys it in an auction every 30 minutes, starting with the cheapest type of electricity. The cheapest bid got dispatched and you just kept working up the merit order so that the last the last bid that got dispatched was the more expensive in the stack to meet demand. So late 90s that started. The cheapest type of electricity at the time was coal. So coal generators just ran all day and all night, which was good for them as that's pretty much all they can do. Remember how Alison Reeve described them as a giant kettle? They take a very long time for that kettle to heat up and then when you, turn, you try to turn them down again, it takes a very long time to cool down. So they're not very responsive if there are rapid changes in the balance between supply and demand in the grid. Other types of electricity, which are easier to turn on and off, like hydroelectricity and gas, could sit there quietly and wait for a hot day or a cold night when lots of people need power and demand rises. Then, as AEMO became more desperate to meet that demand, they'd cash in with expensive power at premium prices. It was a real feat, actually, to get that going. And it led to quite sizable decreases in electricity prices at the time. But a competitive market meant you had to be able to, well, compete. About a decade ago, that started to become more tricky for the Latrobe Valley power plants. The cracks are believed to have been caused by unstable land on the north side of the nearby Hazelwood coal mine, and there are fears any further instability could lead to a landslide. After heavy rain in Morwell, concerns that the Prince's Freeway would fall into the Hazelwood pit led to a seven-month closure of the vital road, with traffic diverted through Morwell itself. The tracks are just unbelievable, and they're all bloody big 32-wheelers. They're huge. People stayed away from town to avoid the traffic jams, another hit to the local economy. The following year, the Morwell River, which we were floating down earlier, also became a problem. Levees were built to divert the river through the mines, but they broke under the strain of heavy rain. As a result, the Morwell River started cascading into the mine from both directions, halting operations on three conveyors that transport coal to the generators. It was chaotic. The flooding in the mine disrupted the flow of coal into the power station and it had to shut off some of its boilers for weeks. Then, two years later, the opposite problem. After an incredibly hot, dry summer, a grass fire was spreading across the valley. Wendy Farmer's husband worked at Hazelwood Power Station. They were calling all workers into the mine. The mine is on fire. My husband called me as he was getting to the gate and he he just said, this doesn't look very good. This is the worst I've ever seen. And he said it was just fire everywhere. It was terrifying. There was ash all over our houses, over our cars. This fire burned for 45 days. It smoked out not just small, but the whole of Latrobe Valley. Depends which way the wind blew. At least four or five times the norm, uh, normal number of patients who's presented with uh, short breath, uh, uh, dizziness, uh, irritation in the eye, uh, more precipitated asthma for the asthmatic patient. Recognising the threat to health, students at Morwell schools were sent to neighbouring towns. I picked him up from school one day and he got in the car and he said, I don't want to go home, mummy. And I said, why? Because my house hurts me. You know, he, he actually, and like, as a mum, like that nearly killed me. It was later proved that people had died through that 
through um, inquiries that had been called, that people had died through that industrial disaster. Later studies would link the mine fire to 11 premature deaths and a three to four month delay in education outcomes for local students. I think the the sense that uh, this was an, uh, a power station that was on the way out was fairly well entrenched at that point anyway. By this point, Darren Chester was no longer a local journo. He was the Nationals MP for Gippsland in the federal parliament. And in terms of the fire, I guess it just added to the the feeling that we'd be better off uh, if we didn't have that mine there anymore was probably a majority view for the people of Morwell, you know, living nearby the mine. This hadn't always been the majority view, or the view of Darren Chester. In 2011, as the carbon price was being passed by the Gillard government, Darren Chester said he was confident coal mining had a long future in the valley. There is more than 500 years of brown coal available for us to use. Now, I can't think of any nation in the world that would turn its back on such a valuable resource and not use it in the future. I think it's inevitable that we'll need to build more baseload power stations in the Latrobe Valley. Even at the time, though, the owners of Loyang, the youngest of the three power stations in the valley, thought it was unlikely. Look, at the moment, to think there would be investment in a new brown coal power station, probably the answer is no. And by the time Morwell was blanketed in smoke, it was clear to Darren Chester too. It certainly became apparent to me there was no appetite within government to support such development, and even less appetite now amongst industries. The question became not whether new coal plants would be built, but how long the existing ones could last, particularly considering they kept being struck by disaster. Hazelwood was the most vulnerable. It just kept having accidents and outages. The thing that was the straw that broke the camel's back was that they had some investigations through WorkSafe Victoria about some accidents. The workplace safety regulator issued Hazelwood with a list of things they needed to fix if they wanted to keep operating. What they would have had to do in order to make the plant safe for people to work in was actually more money than it was, you know, they would have had to spend more than they really would have logically been able to make back in selling electricity. After six decades as the backbone of Victoria's electricity supply, Hazelwood closed. Thankfully, for Victorians worried about electricity supply, new coal-fired power stations had been built in Queensland, which could pick up the slack. Worryingly, though, the most impressive of those new power stations was in trouble. Biloela, Queensland is famous for a family of Tamil asylum seekers who were put in detention on Christmas Island, but the main game in town is electricity. Turning on a light switch is partly due to this town here, so we're an integral part of the statewide infrastructure for electricity in this, in this country. Calide Power Station, 400 kilometres northwest of Brisbane, just outside of Biloela, is one of Australia's newest power stations. Calide C was not actually expected to close on the basis of its technical lifespan until 2051. It's probably as close as Australia's ever going to get to a clean coal-fired power station. It was the site of an attempt at carbon capture and storage technology, the Calide A Oxyfuel project, which was shut down in 2016. The newest part of the plant is two 450-megawatt advanced supercritical steam turbines, which are apparently almost as efficient as coal-fired electricity gets. They ran without significant incident for 20 years, until Tuesday, 25th of May last year. It was a pretty ordinary day in Queensland. The weather was fine, the temperature was bang on the May average. 
In Brisbane, voluntary assisted dying legislation began its journey through the parliament. We have listened and today we act. But at 1.33 in the afternoon, things were about to get interesting in the town of Biloela. Calide's C4 turbine, spinning at 3,000 revolutions per minute, powered by tonnes and tonnes of premium Queensland black coal, stopped generating electricity. There was a, uh, some maintenance going on at the plant. It was something that was sparked by uh, some human error in the maintenance program. It seems like multiple safety systems may have been plugged into the same power board. They then tested the power board and accidentally switched off all of their control and monitoring systems. It's like being the captain of a 747 jet and suddenly having all of your controls go dead. The screens in the cockpit go dead and then the windscreen go black. Also, the engines failed, but you couldn't tell. The controllers had no idea what was happening in their turbine. Under normal circumstances, if there's a fault like this, the turbine is supposed to disconnect itself from the grid. The main circuit breaker opens and the turbine just slowly runs down. It didn't. And that's really, really, really bad. What happened over the following 30 minutes is so catastrophic, it sounds like it happened in a TV show. This is our version of Chernobyl, except instead of a nuclear power station, it was an old-fashioned coal one. The reason you want the turbine to disconnect from the grid in a situation like this is that when a 450 megawatt generator stops generating electricity but stays connected, it starts to draw power from the grid. It becomes a 50 megawatt motor, big enough to push a fully laden coal ship out of Gladstone Harbour. The C4 turbine briefly became the largest motor on Earth as it drew up to 90 megawatts from the grid and spun inside a steam-filled tube creating friction and heat. Immediately, the Australian energy market operator in their control room in Brisbane noticed something was happening. Queensland's electricity grid was suddenly 200 megawatts short and had unexpectedly started pulling in power from New South Wales. They soon realised that Calide's C4 turbine was sucking in power instead of pushing it out. In the Calide control room, there was chaos. Their system was going haywire. Their computers started giving them alarm messages, slowly at first, then faster and faster, until the control room operators were being shown 500 alarms per minute. There was nothing the staff could do, though. Their control systems had been unplugged. They evacuated. 33 minutes after the incident began, the turbine started to disintegrate. The generator was absorbing about as much energy as it normally takes to power the entire state of Tasmania. The bearings inside the turbine became so hot, they melted through the generator's hardened steel axle, and the whole machine ripped apart. Pieces of it flew through the walls, through the ceiling, and were found kilometres away. The turbine shaft flew out of the generator and embedded itself several inches into the floor. Finally, safety switches flicked, switching off the rest of the power station. Across Queensland, a shudder went through the power grid. Safety switches also flicked off power stations in Gladstone, Stanwell and Townsville. To our breaking news, authorities are investigating a massive power outage in southeast Queensland. Half the state went dark. 
Tonight, an explosion at a central Queensland power station causes widespread outages across the state, creating chaos for traffic and leaving hundreds of thousands of homes cut from the grid. The Gold Coast University Hospital blacked out. Emergency generators were activated in critical areas. Universities were plunged into darkness. Shoppers were locked out, with businesses forced to shut, all during the afternoon trade. An outage in one part of the network had tipped the balance between supply and demand out of whack. The voltage and frequency of the entire grid started to dip as the state's lights, air conditioners, traffic lights, trains, TVs, kettles and toasters demanded more power than the system was generating. This led to a domino effect, as breaker switches across the state flicked off. This was the second time something like this had happened in five years. Remember that South Australian storm? The entire state of South Australia has gone to black. It's gone off the grid. What we saw with the South Australian blackout in 2016 was that that was actually a failure of the transmission system. Um, You know, the the poles and wires were literally blown over and, and not working. Like in Queensland, the frequency and voltage of the grid became unstable and flicked off safety switches, this time at wind farms. It wasn't because the wind was blowing too fast, but because the grid was unstable. When that happened, South Australia started pulling in a significant amount of power from Victoria, powered by the brown coal generators of the Latrobe Valley. The interconnecting power line between the two states overloaded and switched off. Bang. Blackout. So it didn't really matter whether, you know, you had generation available or not. You couldn't move the electricity to where it was needed. The thing is, disasters like this are really, really expensive. For Calide, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars to replace their extremely destroyed turbine. And since they need to compete on the national energy market, anything that raises their costs is bad. Add to that the fact that solar and wind are now often cheaper than coal, and you start to see the problem. In that eBay bidding process for power, coal-fired power stations are being undercut. I personally think that there's going to be very few coal-fired power stations in the market after 2030. Kerry Schott, in her role as the head of the Energy Security Board, was tasked with making sure Australia had access to reliable electricity. She says that despite some coal-fired power stations suggesting they can stay open well into the 2040s or even the 2050s, the ones in New South Wales and Victoria particularly aren't going to make it. All of those plants are going to struggle to last, you know, another decade. And it would be amazing to me if they did. Queensland has the youngest coal plants and the more efficient. Uh, So their coal plants will probably last longer than anybody else's. That's not just Kerry Schott's opinion. Ian McFarlane, head of the Queensland Resources Council, the mining lobby, agrees. You know, I'd be realistic and say that domestic coal-fired generations... um, you know, rapidly approaching the time when it will close and that may be within the decade. In other countries, though, as I say, they are still building coal-fired power stations and, and potentially the advent of carbon capture and storage, which, which is a key technology in terms of lowering our emissions, may in fact extend the time that coal is used rather than um, uh, what we're seeing at the moment. Just to confirm what you're saying there, you think that there is a reasonable chance that coal-fired generation, including in Queensland, could be phased out within a decade of, from now? 
Well, yeah, it's it's hard to put a de- date on it, but if you look at closures being bought, bought forward again, Queensland will be one of the last uh, last to close down coal-fired power stations. Replacing coal with not coal is not just a matter of switching one type off and turning another type on. That really would lead to blackouts. Renewable energy presents a number of problems. Thankfully, we've pretty much solved them. The first problem with renewable energy relates to something we've already discussed, the frequency of the grid. In order to work, everything on the grid needs to be synchronised. The current needs to alternate backwards and forwards 50 times every second or close to it or things start to break. Coal power plants are great at this because they have something called inertia. Imagine a bike upside down in your garage. If you smack the wheel to speed it up, it will go faster and faster. But if you stop smacking it for a second, it will still continue to spin. In a coal power plant, the massive spinning generators behave like that bike wheel. Even if you were to stop uh, the process for, say, five minutes, it would still keep going because the mechanical equipment is still going around. Now, that means that when you're dispatching electricity into the grid, think of electricity as a wave. The frequency of it and the strength of it is much the same every second that you're dispatching it. The problem is... Renewable energy isn't like that. And solar power, for example, if the sun suddenly stops, the solar power is going through an inverter and getting inverted into a wave, but... The minute the sun stops, it stops. So, and literally in a matter of seconds. And if you can imagine it like an electricity fuse in your home, the fuse immediately would blow. So you can't have that happening in an electricity system without the whole system going down. You need need very stable frequency and system strength. Thankfully, Alan Finkel kind of against his will, Help! was appointed by Josh Frydenberg to work on a national plan to do this. We can overcome the lack of inertia by putting things called spinning condensers or synchronous condensers into the system, which are just giant spinning masses with coils on them. Australia now has several. The first were installed in South Australia. Then there's the other problem, the one everyone knows about. The peak use times, when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. Let's put up some windmills. When the wind doesn't blow, just turn off the television, darling, please. Really, renewable energy are the dull bludgers of the energy system. They're not on all the time. They just turn up to work when they want to. No wind out today. There's no wind. Please turn off the television quickly. How to store the energy from solar and wind so it can be used when the wind ain't shining and the sun ain't blowing. It's top of the list of talking points from people opposed to renewable energy. A few months after those tornadoes took out South Australia's power, there was another blackout in the state. This one was caused by human error, not tornadoes, and it was much smaller, but it fed into the existing debate about the state's renewable energy and kicked off the push to store that energy. Uh, Yeah, no, look, it was like 1am in the morning and I'd had a, a pretty bad week of hearing politicians talking about the wrong things to do with energy in this country. This is Mike Cannon-Brooks. He's a billionaire, something to do with computers. His company's called Atlassian. This one morning in 2017, he saw a tweet from the boss of Tesla Australia saying South Australia's energy problems could be fixed in 100 days 
with a big battery. I just tweeted him uh, 1am and said, uh, was he serious and did he think you could do this if I could uh, figure out the other parts of the equation? Cannon Brooks said if they could provide 100 megawatts in 100 days, he'd organise the cash. If it took more than 100 days, the battery would be free. A little terminology lesson, because we're going to be using this term a bit. Electricity coming out of power stations is measured in megawatts, but the volume of electric power is measured differently. If I gave you a battery with one megawatt of electricity in it, it would power your suburb for a fraction of a second. If I gave you a battery with one megawatt hour in it, your suburb would be powered for one hour, or your house for three weeks. Mike Cannon-Brooks is talking about a battery that can store 100 megawatt hours of electricity, enough to power all of South Australia for just over three minutes. A 100 megawatt hour battery, I believe, would have certainly solved um, and ridden them through the February problems that they had. If you can smooth out shocks to the system, you can stop blackouts. And that's really useful because while they're putting out that extra current, the circuit breakers and other protective equipment can kick into action and stabilise the system. It helps solve both problems with renewable energy. Batteries can mimic inertia by dumping massive amounts of power into the grid at short notice and deal with the moments when clouds drift over your solar farm. The Tesla battery in South Australia was completed in 63 days. But to go entirely renewable, we need a lot more than 100 megawatt hours. AEMO estimates that we need at least 620,000 megawatt hours of storage available by 2050. They expect that wind and solar will be able to handle the demand in the daytime. But at night, we currently rely on coal-fired power stations using their 1.2 trillion megawatt hours of energy stored in the form of black burnable rocks. Coal. I'm talking about coal. Australia will need a lot of storage to help us through the night, or a few still cloudy days. And Alan Finkel says that'll come in two flavours. For short duration, up to six, seven or eight hours um, storage, the current economics favour lithium-ion batteries over pumped hydro. But for many days or even weeks of storage, the economics would favour pumped hydro. Pumped hydro plants have been around for decades. You have two dams, one much higher than the other, and when you've got excess electricity, you use that to pump water up to the high dam. And that actually adds what is called gravitational potential energy to the water. You've added energy to the water by lifting it up high. And of course, what that water wants to do is come back down again. So when you need electricity, you let the water from the high dam flow down a pipe through a generator into the low dam and generate electricity. And you can pump water up and down, up and down, up and down without actually using up water. We already have three of these. They're pretty small and were built last century. But as of 2017, a massive one has been under construction in the Snowy Mountains. The Prime Minister is switching the focus now to energy, confirming that Snowy 2.0, as it's known, is apparently good to go. I am a nation-building Prime Minister, believe me, and this is a nation-building project. The Prime Minister wants to boost its capacity by 50%, enough to power half a million homes. Using Snowy Hydro as a giant battery. Half a million homes, though, isn't enough. 
Neither is the battery in South Australia or any of the batteries planned for installation around the country. If Kerry shot's right and coal-fired power is going to struggle to last far into the 2030s, we have a lot of work to do. There is a plan for this. There are a few, actually. There are multiple potential futures where things are much, much, much better than they are now with zero emissions. But, well, I think former Environment Minister Graeme Richardson says it best. I think um, how we handle this issue is something that uh, can have a, a huge effect on our economy. And if we're smart, that effect won't be a bad one. It'll be good. Mm. But, you know, the, the, the big question is if we're smart. We're not always smart. If we're smart. Australia, if you're listening, is written by me, Matt Bevan. It's produced by Sam Dunn and Will Ockenden, with research by Lexi Metherill. Our series producer is Jess O'Callaghan. Next. It's an Australian first, a house that consumes and produces electricity. In 1994, on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland, a new technology was being tested. Solar panels that could not only power the house they were on top of, but also... Its excess energy can feed back into the main electricity grid. It seemed like a futuristic idea, a power station in someone's home. One metre records exports, the other imports from the network at night. 28 years later, there are now more than 3 million of these homes in Australia. In fact, the number of solar panels and wind farms being installed across the country means that we will soon be able to get all our power from the wind and sun. The opportunities this creates for us are enormous. But can we grab them? That's next on Australia for Listening.